I want to uh, leave as much time as possible for questions. So I will get straight to the topic. Why should Singapore care about the Middle East? Well, the short answer is, despite our very best efforts over quite some time to ignore the Middle East, the Middle East refused to ignore us. And I don't mean that facetiously, I mean that literally. My very first job in MFA when I joined uh, the service in the early 19, in 1981 to be precise, uh, my very first job was, was to be desk officer for the Middle East. And I held that august position for all of 40 minutes before our then permanent secretary, Mr. S.R. Nathan, the late S.R. Nathan, our former president, uh, found out about it. And as it was reported to me, which I later confirmed with him, said, give the boy a proper job. And that pretty much summed up our attitude to the Middle East for a long time. Um, we had, at that time, only two diplomatic missions in the Middle East. And the reasons for setting them up had very little to do with the Middle East per se. We had a mission in Cairo, Egypt, not because we were particularly interested in Egypt or North Africa or the Middle East, but because when we were unceremoniously removed from Malaysia, we needed diplomatic recognition and Egypt was one of the leading lights of the non-aligned movement. And we thought we better uh, have a presence there so we could, if necessary, make contact with other members of the non-aligned movement and get their diplomatic recognition. We also had, and this is the only other mission we had in the Middle East, uh, a consulate in Jeddah. And it was not because we were particularly interested in Saudi Arabia. It's only to service Singapore Muslims who went on the Hajj. In other words, for most of the year, they didn't have very much to do. Um, did, that didn't, this doesn't mean we didn't have anything to do with the Middle East, but it was very tangential, very marginal. We, of course, interacted with Middle Eastern countries in places like the UN, the Non-Aligned Meeting, and other international organizations. We dealt with Middle East issues in the UN. But any of you who know the UN will know that that is a very uh, artificial environment. What happens in the UN is only peripherally connected to what happens in the real world. Uh, we are, of course, an oil refining center, uh, but the oil supplies were secured by the oil major, so we didn't really have to worry about it. And we had, the closest relationship we had in the Middle East was with Israel. I'll talk a bit more about Israel later on, but, and we had to balance our relations with the Arab countries with Israel. But by and large, this was not a deep relationship. It is not something we spent a lot of time on. And Mr. Nathan, the late Mr. Nathan, was not wrong when he said to, to my boss, then give the boy a proper job, and I did something else. Um, but this was pretty much the situation of our relationship with the Middle East until the late 1990s and the early 2000s, when we discovered Despite all these efforts to ignore the Middle East, the Middle East refused to ignore us. Around that time, late 1990s, early 
2000s, we began to recognize that something was happening all around us in Singapore and all around us in Southeast Asia that was connected to the Middle East. And what we began to notice was that Islam as traditionally conceived of and practiced in Southeast Asia was being transformed by influences from the Middle East. Now, Islam, of course, comes from the Middle East originally, but the Islam that was practiced in Southeast Asia as it evolved over centuries in Southeast Asia was a very open, syncretic one, um, very Sufis, incorporating elements of Hinduism, Buddhism, and you know, uh, traditional culture, the adat of uh, the indigenous peoples of this region. But it was being transformed almost without our noticing it. And by the time we started to notice it, it had been substantially changed. Uh, this is a phenomenon that I and some others have called the Arabization of Islam in Southeast Asia. It really should be called the Wahhabization or the Salafization of Islam in Southeast Asia. Whereas this traditional open syncretic way of practicing Islam was being replaced by something that was more purist in focus, more narrow in focus, and more exclusive in its focus. And this was a matter of concern, not a religious concern per se, because how anybody wants to practice any religion is their own business, but because every society in Southeast Asia, and certainly Singapore, is a plural society. There is no homogeneous society in Southeast Asia. Even Thailand and Vietnam, which seem to be homogeneous, uh, a closer look are less homogeneous. But in but they are mainland countries in South in maritime Southeast Asia, in Malaysia, in Indonesia, in the Philippines, uh, it, there are no homogeneous societies. And if and there are substantial Muslim communities in these all these countries, and if they were becoming more inward looking. They had, this had profound implications for the social stability of these countries and the politics of these countries and including ourselves, of course. Um, it was around this time that in Malaysia, uh, Dr. Mahathir challenged PAS, the Islamist party, by asking them, by telling them, you know, why are you asking for Malaysia to become a Muslim state? We are already a Muslim state. Now, that was not, strictly speaking, correct, because if you look at the Malaysian constitution, uh, the role of religion is much more nuanced. But it started a dynamic in which if you are inclined, uh, inclined if you as a Muslim are inclined to moderation, to openness, you are bound to lose. Because now, if he has considered that Malaysia is a Muslim country, then the only, def the only question that remains to be settled is, how Muslim are you? And if you are a Muslim party, you will definitely be able to outbid uh, a secular party, a secular nationalist party, which UMNO used to be. And notice I use the past tense. Around the same time, too, we discovered a terrorist plot in Southeast Asia, Jamaya Ismaimaya. Uh, whose goal was through the means of terror to establish a caliphate in Southeast Asia. 
comprised mainly of the Philippines, Indonesia, Malaysia. Singapore was irrelevant. We were just in between and it was assumed we would disappear when the caliphate was, was um, established. Now, the connection between what I call the Arabization of Southeast Asia or the Wahhabization of, of Islam in Southeast Asia and this terror plot is not a direct one. Uh, of course, it's not a direct one. Uh, whether they practice, irrespective of how they practice, they choose to practice their religion, the majority of Muslims in Southeast Asia are not interested in terrorism. It is a religion of peace. They want to live peacefully. Uh, however, it defies the imagination to think that there is no broad or loose correlation between these two phenomena, particularly it, since J.I. was linked to Al-Qaeda. Uh, it's not just Muslims, by the way, that have been influenced by the Middle East. Christianity is also a Middle Eastern religion in its origins. And around the same time, various strains of evangelical Christianity that whose attitudes, whose political and social attitudes were colored by events in the Middle East began to influence Southeast Asia through the modality of mainly American evangelical movements. In any case, then Prime Minister Go Chok Tong decided that we needed to understand more about this phenomenon and the source of this phenomenon and began our engagement of the Middle East. Uh, Mr. Go led personally several missions to the Middle East, Middle Eastern countries to establish deeper relationships. Uh, and that is also the origins of the Middle East Institute because he thought in this such complicated region, it was necessary for the government to have more, uh, an independent source of assessments. And that was why the Middle East Institute was uh, formed in the first place. Now, I don't want you to get the impression that it's only because of this Arabization phenomenon that we got interested in the Middle East. It's not possible to study the Middle East without taking religion into, uh, into, concern, uh, into consideration. But more often than not, more often than not, religion is only a cover for geopolitical interests, geopolitical mm -hmm. dynamics that have actually nothing to do with Singapore or Southeast Asia, but nonetheless influenced us. For example, insofar as Saudi Arabia or other Gulf states began to propagate their versions or their ideas of Islam in Southeast Asia and other regions of the world, it was after the Iranian Revolution when they saw themselves uh, as, as the champions of the Sunni version of Islam, a particular type of the Sunni version of Islam, vis-a-vis uh, -vis Iran, which was claiming a greater authenticity for the Shia religion because they had conducted an Islamic revolution, the first one, they say. And, you know, uh, the number of Shia in Southeast Asia is minuscule. But because of the geopolitical dynamics, the origins of which have got nothing to do with Singapore or Southeast Asia, a certain degree of sectarian tension has been introduced into countries like Indonesia and Malaysia 
And I don't think Singapore is free of it either, although it is a very, in very, very mild form in Singapore. Now, and these sectarian tensions in, say, Malaysia or Indonesia have really nothing to do with the religion. They are being used by politicians for political advantage, as they are being used in the Middle East for geopolitical advantage. And it is necessary, I think, for Singaporeans to understand that while religion, which is supposed to be universal, uh, is only in the Middle East more often than not a cover, an excuse uh, for geopolitical interests that have nothing to do with our region. It changes your attitude towards things that happen. That's why we need to understand the Middle East a bit more uh, in greater depth. Now, that is the reason why we began to engage the Middle East in the first place. It was essentially a defensive interest to understand better something that was influencing our environment uh, around us and, uh, and to some degree in Singapore too. But as we began to engage the Middle East more deep, deeply, we found that while we were ignoring them, they were not ignoring us. In the Gulf in particular, they were studying Singapore's experience to see what lessons they could take for their own economic development, for their own social cultural development. And of course, we were happy, happy to help them. And in the process, uh, we found that there were positive interests, economic interests mainly, uh, that we could tap into. Uh, we made mistakes because we were so ignorant. We made mistakes as we began to deeply engage the Middle East with this positive agenda of sharing our experience. Uh, I'll give you just one example, which sounds very stupid when I, uh, uh, when I articulate it. One of the Gulf states were very interested in our civil service college and wanted us to help them to, to start a civil service college of their own because they greatly admired the efficiency of the Singapore civil service and wanted to know how we trained our civil service and so on. We were happy to help and they were willing to pay us to you know, give us a contract to help establish the civil service college in, in that Gulf state. What did we do in our infinite wisdom? We sent a very young woman to go and engage that country, uh, which was a totally culturally insensitive thing to do. Now this young woman, who is no longer young because it's quite some time ago, was a very competent person. She was probably the best person from a purely technocratic point of view to go and help these people, uh, first of all, conceptualize exactly how they wanted to do the civil service college. But of course, when she met uh, in a patriarchal society, like as this particular Gulf state was, and still is to a large extent, she didn't get very far and you know it was a complete mess. No, that's just one small example of the kinds of mistakes we made as we began to more deeply engage the Middle East. Now, so by the, by the 2000s, we had both a defensive agenda and a positive agenda. Uh, the weight between the defensive and positive agenda is not equal, they vary over time. It started with a very defensive agenda. It became a very positive agenda. The positive agenda is, has kind of plateaued, I think, uh, for now at least, because the 
the Middle East and the Gulf in particular have other preoccupations, but it has not disappeared entirely. And now that uh, Saudi Arabia and other Gulf states are looking more insistently than in the past to diversify their economies away from total dependence on just one commodity, energy, I think the positive agenda will become more prominent once again. Uh, without, but of course, neglecting the other part of the agenda. Uh, at the heart of this effort to change their economy, which will entail some degree of changing their society, uh, particularly with regard to the role of women and the role of young people in their societies, is Saudi Arabia. The other Gulf states, the UAE, Oman, Kuwait, they were a bit more advanced, but they are essentially quite small countries and what they do will have a limited impact. What Saudi Arabia does, whether it succeeds in its reform efforts or it fails, will have a profound effect on the entire Muslim world. Uh, it's a bit early to say whether they will succeed or fail, but it's something that we should watch very carefully, both for a negative agenda and uh, our, our defensive agenda and our positive agenda. Uh, last September, I and uh, another member of the Middle East Institute went to Saudi Arabia. Uh, I hadn't been there for some years, and I was quite pleasantly surprised by what I saw. For example, I saw a number of Saudi women I wouldn't say it's a huge number, but, there, but uh, a discernible number of Saudi women no longer cover their head. It is now not an obligation. The, the religious police have been cut down to size, and it's now up to the individual whether she wants to cover her head or not. Some of them wore colorful abayas. In the past, it's all black. Again, not a huge amount, but in that context, it was very striking to me and I think quite significant. And of course, you know, now, entertainment is allowed. People can go to the cinema. Uh, people can listen to music. P women are allowed to drive. And much more important than women being allowed to drive is I saw in the places I visited in Saudi Arabia, women working. And I don't mean working by serving tea or, or coffee or something like that. I mean, we, we visited, for example, the Diplomatic Institute of the Saudi Arabia, which is a department of the foreign ministry, and there quite a number of the women, the researchers were women. And these are all very good signs. But, but it's an early stage of the Saudi reform process, and whether they will succeed or not is an open question. Of course, it is in our interest and the interest of actually every country in the world to hope and do what we can to help the Saudis succeed. But in the end, it is up to them, and the challenges are great. In any case, we are now committed to the long-term engagement of the Middle East, and you know, our presence, our footprint in the Middle East has increased exponentially. I began by telling you that we, have only, um, we had only two missions in the Middle East, in Cairo and a consulate in Jeddah. Now we have full embassies in Saudi Arabia, in the UAE, in Egypt, in Turkey, uh, in Turkey, we have consul generals in Oman, in Muscat in Oman, in Dubai, in Jeddah, and we have non-resident ambassadors to Kuwait, to Jordan, 
to Israel and to Iran. Uh, one of our first free trade agreements, by the way, was with Jordan. It's a kind of a It's not that the economic relationship was so great uh, or so deep or so important, but we, when we were beginning to learn how to negotiate free trade agreements, we began learning through with Jordan. And we had uh, a very interesting technical assistance program in conjunction with Japan for Jordan for the entire Middle East. Uh, let me say a few words about, about Israel. Our main interest, Middle East can be divided into two sectors. A kind of northern tier of what used to be called the Levant, which includes Turkey, Iran, um, Iraq, Syria, the North, the, the North African countries, and the southern tier, which is basically the Gulf. Our main interest whether defensive or positive, are with the Gulf. Of course, we have a growing interest in Turkey, mainly economic, but our relationship with Israel in the northern tier is an old one. I don't know how many of you know, it's, it used to be a deep, deadly secret, but it no longer is a deep, deadly secret, that when we, were, uh, we became unexpectedly independent, shall we say, politely, uh, one of the most urgent tasks, because relations with both our neighbors, North and South, were rather fraught in those days, was to establish an armed force, a credible armed force. And we went around the world asking many countries whether they would help us do so. The entire might of the Singapore Armed Forces at that time was two battalions of infantry, one SIR and two SIR. And to our horror, we found that the majority of the soldiers were Malaysians, and back they went to Malaysia. Uh, so we went around the world asking people, we asked the British, we asked the Australians, we asked the Indians, we even asked the Egyptians, among others, will you help us form an armed force? And they all turned us down. Uh, for a very good reason, because nobody thought we would survive. So why antagonize two big countries, Malaysia and Indonesia, to help Singapore when Singapore is not going to be around for much longer? Israel, however, did help us. And that was a very crucial assistance at a very crucial time of our history and the foundation of that relationship. If not for that help, I am not sure we would be, I'll be here talking to you today. Uh, and certainly all you see around us in Singapore probably would not exist. Now the relationship with Israel has grown since then. It's not a purely defense or security relationship. It, it uh, encompasses research and development, it encompasses education, a, a number of fields. Uh, I visit Israel quite often, uh, at least once or twice a year, since I retired more often twice a year. And I have often run into groups of Singapore students who are studying in Israel, uh, mainly for NUS, they have some kind of program that allows them to spend an academic year in Israel and they all enjoy themselves. Uh, so it is a broad relationship and it is not one that has ever really proved to be an obstacle to developing our deeper engagement of the Arab countries. Let me tell you a story. Uh, some years ago, when I was still in the foreign ministry, I visited a certain Gulf state which shall remain anonymous for bilateral consultations. 
so I went there, I arrived there, and next morning I woke up and opened the English language newspaper and I found that the Israelis had started Operation Kaslet to go into Gaza to stop rocket attacks on Israel. And I said to myself, oh shit, you know, because I'm going to get a earful from my counterpart. So I went to see him and I had a earful for five minutes about Israel. Most of the law meeting we had was him telling me how the real threat was Iran. Now, we don't have to buy that uh, wholesale because we, ha we have a good relationship with Iran. It's not an easy relationship all the time, but it's one that we, we value and want to de develop. But it just showed you that Israel is no longer a very sensitive issue for most of the Arab world, at least for Arab governments. Palestine is still there as an issue, but it is not one that really exercises Arab governments anymore, and many of the Gulf states in particular have developed their own ties with Israel. It used to be very secret, now it is hardly secret anymore. Uh, this gives us more room, actually, to develop a relationship with both Israel and the Arab countries, and that's a good thing. Now, Israel is a very complicated society, which is in, uh, itself in a process of uh, rapid change. There are all kinds of tensions within Israel uh, between the ultra-Orthodox Jews and the more secular Jews, between the Arab Israelis and, and the Jewish Israelis. But I see in my own experience and from what I've read, the Arab Israelis are becoming more integrated into the mainstream of at least the secular part of Israeli society. Uh, if you go to the University of Haifa, Haifa is in the northern, middle northern part of Israel, uh, and it's a traditionally Arab area. If you go to the University of Haifa, you really can't tell a male Arab student from a Jewish student. Females, you can tell because many of them still cover their head, right? But they all speak Hebrew quite fluently to my ears. They all study there together. And, you, and young people, they dress alike, apart from the hijab or the tudor. Right? Uh, and more important, recently, there are more and more East, Arabs from East Jerusalem who are joining Hebrew University in Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Because they want to learn Hebrew, they want to get good jobs, they want to be more integrated into Israeli society. Anyway, enough about that. Let me just turn to my last point about why we should be interested in the Middle East. The Middle East is in a state of geopolitical flux. I mean, you could say the Middle East is always in a state of geopolitical flux because it's not the most stable relation, uh, stable region in the world, but it is in a more than usual state of instability and flux. Now, the how geopolitics plays out in the Middle East will have an indirect impact on how things are regarded in other parts of the world. The US is recalibrating its role in the Middle East. This is sometimes described in the media as the US retreating from the Middle East. I think that's a very simplistic way of looking at it. The, middle, the US made a serious mistake when it got involved in ground wars in the Middle East after 2003. Uh, it is now recalibrating its presence to play its traditional role of an offshore balancer. 
it is it is running down its ground presence and this began under president obama it's not something that trump thought of for himself uh, but i see no sign of the us fifth fleet leaving bahrain i see no sign of the us air force leaving qatar where it has a very huge base uh, at the same time, Russia has dealt itself into the Middle East equation, mainly because of mistakes made by uh, Secretary John Kerry, I think, in the second Obama administration. But Russia's ability to operate in the Middle East is limited because don't forget, Russia has an economy about the size of South Korea. China is also trying to engage the Middle East more closely, but trying to limit its engagement to economics, largely economics, trade, investment, and so on. Whether it will succeed or not remains to be seen because there's no major power that has been able to avoid getting sucked into the geopolitics of the Middle East. And how this plays out will have an indirect impact on our own region. And let me just give you two examples. You remember, or at least some of you remember who follow these things, that President Obama drew a red line in the sand over Syrian use of chemical weapons in its civil war. But he did nothing to enforce that civil line, that red line. And when he drew a red line and did nothing to enforce it, the credibility of American power was eroded globally, including in our own region. On the other hand, when Mr. Trump drew a red, decided to bomb Syria, over its use of chemical weapons while having dinner with Xi Jinping, he did a lot to restore the credibility of American power in our region and globally. 